Hello, welcome to Our Foundations. My name is Joshua. Today I'm going to start wrapping up season one. We have basically finished season one as a whole, and so now I want to take a few episodes to sum things up, wrap things up, do kind of an overview, connect some of the themes, that kind of stuff. Because each of the different series we've done and episodes I've done, they've been individualized and focused on certain things, certain aspects, certain systems, certain events, whatever. And they really haven't been tied together completely. Although, obviously, if you have listened to the entirety of season one, you could see how these things connect and how they tie together. And I reference different aspects. But I wanted to take a few episodes to do an overall view of all of the stuff that was covered in season one and kind of connect the dots and talk about the overarching concepts and that kind of thing. So I'm going to do the overarching concepts in this episode, and those would be mainly the battle between centralized control and individual freedom, or the ideology of individualism versus collectivism. This has been woven in through just about every concept that has been talked about in season one. The other thing I wanted to cover is basically the reality of the systems that we live under and current modern governmental structures. The reality of these is a little different than what most people think and what would be ideal. So I'm going to talk about these different things in this episode today. So to begin with, how about just the idea of centralized control versus individual freedom? Well, centralized control isn't bad per se, but it's not always necessary and it's not always beneficial. There are definitely perks involved here, but it usually doesn't play out that way historically. And so if we look at the actual facts and look at reality, it seems to indicate that centralized control is not something that we should have for every system and every aspect of society. However, we do see that there are areas where it is beneficial and it can help. So let's look into that a little further. When we relate this to the themes of season one, that would be government, money, and education, we see that these things have all been done without centralized government control throughout history, throughout the majority of history. We have had organization, we've had governance, we've had justice, we've had all of these different types of things that are extremely important for a society, and we have had them without centralized government control throughout the majority of history. We've had these things done independently, we have had these done in a decentralized way and in a localized way, and it depends on the society and the time period and whatever you look at, but you have seen, as you have gone through season one, that there are plenty of examples of this happening. Also, when you skip over to money, generally accepted and convenient means of exchange are very beneficial. And that is something that a society, especially a society at the level we have today, really needs. We need to have money. And this is very important. But again, if you look historically, there has typically been money that has been used and exchanged without any centralized government control or at least having the 
government only play the role of using this medium of exchange and maybe slightly regulating it, but not actually controlling it. So if you look at something like gold, yes, maybe a king would use gold and would mint gold coins and would maybe even set prices of certain goods or services within his kingdom, but that king really has no control over gold itself. He might be able to control how much of it is mined in his kingdom, but overall, gold exists all around the world. It is an actual substance that people can attain, people can use, people can use it outside of this king's coinage system. He doesn't have complete control over gold. And so although there was a an aspect of control, government control, in this example of a king using a gold coin, they don't have complete control. And then if you compare that to today, where we have fiat monetary systems, governments do have complete control. Central banks have complete control, and that's very different. The final aspect that I focus on in season one is education. And having an educated society might be one of the most crucial aspects of having a prosperous and successful society. But it does not require state control or oversight. And in fact, sometimes these things actually hinder the education of a people group in a society. Again, if we look historically, throughout most of history, education has been handled outside of state control. That's a relatively new thing. And when states started taking over education, there were some benefits and there were some things that definitely went terribly wrong. And so there are pros and cons like there are with anything. But my point is that centralized control isn't necessarily something that has been a complete success historically. If we actually look at reality, we see that in the past, people educated themselves, families educated their children, or private tutors or private schools worked, or there were charity schools run by churches or religious organizations, or governments set up specific schools for specific citizens or specific roles. And this was a much more decentralized system, much more local control and control by the parents of the children instead of the state that the parents of the children live in. And actually, throughout most of history, there was no such thing as a nation state. So that's not really an accurate term, but you know what I mean. So the point is that Throughout history, centralized education ran by the state has not really been a thing. And as we look at the impact that state-run education has had in modern society, it's not necessarily been a positive thing. So one way to look at it would be to say that our current systems are all scams. They're selling us on something that isn't there and profiting off our falling for it. And this is not really something that most of us individuals are very keen on. So once we are aware of this, we can see that this actually is much more accurate than you would think if I would have told you this before listening to season one of this podcast. So theoretically, centralized systems are efficient. They're effective and they increase prosperity. This just makes sense. It's common sense. If you have one 
body or one person that can make decisions, they can make decisions a lot faster than a large group of people. And if you have somebody to organize everything, then things can get done much more efficiently. If you have a group of people that has the good of all the people in mind when they make decisions, then they can make sure that they allocate resources in such a way that is best for everyone. And this can increase overall prosperity for all the people. Or if the goal is just to have the most prosperous nation, state, or region, or city, or family, or person, whatever the case may be, then this can be done much more efficiently if you have a centralized mechanism for deciding how to allocate resources and how to make decisions. So this theoretically is a very good thing. Having centralized systems can make all of this stuff happen and has they have a lot of positive attributes in these ways. However, realistically, they've been pretty much the opposite due to the governmental structures that exist. So if we actually look at what has happened in real life and historically, we don't see that modern centralized systems have actually increased efficiency. They have not increased the effectiveness of these governing bodies. They have not really increased prosperity to the degree that we would expect from this type of centralized system. So although society has progressed and technology has progressed, and society in general has become more prosperous. America, for example, is one of the most prosperous nations in modern history, and they also have a fairly centralized government. However, when you look at the majority of the progressions that have taken place with technological advancements and prosperity that has been gained, a lot of this has been done through means outside of governmental systems. A lot of the technology has been developed by individual entrepreneurs, and a lot of the overall prosperity has been largely attributed to having a more free market-based system. If you look at the stats from when America was was in the colonial stage and the beginning stages of being a nation and compare that to modern times, the historical times of the colonial era, they were actually more productive. There were more inventions coming out of the country per capita than there are today. And the United States was becoming more prosperous at a faster rate than the other top nations of that time period, like France and England and Germany and these types of places. Versus today, when America still might be increasing their prosperity more than other nations, but not by as much of a margin. We may still be developing more inventions than most other countries, but not quite as many more as there were before. And what has changed? Well, we've actually increased our technology. We have increased our prosperity. Society has moved forward. So you would think that we would be doing even better. But there is another change that has taken place gradually over the decades, over the centuries, that seems to be holding us back from continuing the same rate of prosperity or increasing that rate, and that would be the further centralization of government. So our government in America was first established to be a fairly decentralized system, and I've done an episode on the Constitution. Go back and listen to that if you want the details. But the point is that it started off as a 
largely regional governing system that was very decentralized, very focused on small groups making decisions independently and individual freedom. And uh, free trade was a really big deal at that point in time. Then, as time has progressed, the state has gained more power. The government has become more centralized. Nowadays, you do have state governments, and they do have their role. However, that role is much, much smaller than it was originally intended to be, and the role of the federal government has become much more involved than it was ever intended to be at that time. And as this has happened, as these systems in government have become more centralized, and they have become more powerful and stronger and have more influence than they had before, we see that it seems to be holding back the prosperity gains that we had originally. And there are reasons for that, and I've done episodes on those as well. So you can go back and listen to the arguments against government and their inefficiencies and those types of things if you would like. But the point is that in theory, having a centralized government, having a centralized monetary system and a centralized education system should be very efficient. It should be very effective. These things should make us more and more prosperous. However, they don't seem to be doing so. So what's going on here? If you look at the goals of our modern systems of government, money, and education, we see that the goals seem to be control. That seems to be the key goal of all of these systems. And control is not always necessarily bad. But as we have seen through season one, it does seem to be more of a negative type of control. We see a negative connotation associated with that when we look at what has actually been going on. The methods that seem to be used in our systems and in the forming of the modern systems that we have in government, money, and education, those methods have been corrupt and contradictory. We have seen that there were corruptions and conspiracies that are associated with the beginnings of each one of these aspects of society with government, with money, and with education. All of them have had corruption and conspiracy at their roots when they were started and as they evolved. And the contradictory nature that I'm referring to would be if you look at the goals of these different groups and theoretically what they should be doing, and then you look at what they're actually incentivized to do and the results that they actually produce... There is a definite contradiction there. So after looking at all of these things through season one and how all of these systems have developed and evolved and the results and all of this stuff, it seems that in order to maximize prosperity and happiness and morality, we need to maximize freedom and liberties and individual rights. These seem to be the things that have actually had the effects that we are going for when we create these types of centralized systems. The goals of decentralized, liberty-minded systems are to limit the control of centralized systems and maximize individual control over people's lives. 
And so this is very different. If the goal of our modern systems is control, then the goal of a decentralized, liberty-minded system would be actually a lack of control, for the systems at least, and an increase in control for the individual. And it's the opposite in our current modern systems. Looking at the methods that are used in a decentralized, liberty-minded system, these methods are things like cooperation and logic and competition and incentive systems. These are how the goals are achieved in a decentralized system. And so this is very different than the methods that we saw in our current modern systems that are very centralized. We had corruption and contradictory incentive systems and conspiracies and things that really are not very beneficial for the goals that we would have as individuals and as a nation as a whole, I would think. And so we see a big difference here between the reality of our modern centralized systems and the goals and methods used by a more decentralized, liberty-minded system. And so you would think, well, maybe if that's the case, let's just have everything decentralized and liberty-focused, and that's what we should have as a society. I did an episode on anarcho-capitalism, and that is pretty much the response and the answer to that logical conclusion that you may come to. However, I'd like to actually go against that train of thought for a second and offer the other side. And that would be that completely decentralized systems and a completely liberty-focused nation or world, for example is not necessarily going to work out the way it theoretically should. So I presented all the ideas and arguments in the anarcho-capitalism episodes, and I think I offered a very good argument for that system of an organized society. However, most of that is based on market incentives. It's based on profit and loss. It's based on people wanting to become more prosperous themselves. And in order to do so, the decisions they make actually are more prosperous for society as a whole. And if they are doing things that are bad for society, it hurts their individual prosperity. And so they're incentivized not to do that. So you have incentives and market-based systems that really offer the role of governance and control and regulation in a free market-based society. And theoretically, that works very well. My argument here would just be that not everybody is going to always make the decisions that are logical or rational or that they are incentivized to do. Most people will. And in general, people do make those decisions. But there are plenty of people in the world that are just, I would say, are evil, that they just want to hurt people or that maybe they just want more power. It's a common theme that when somebody has a lot of wealth, and they're very rich, they might be very famous, oftentimes they are not happy and they want more. They keep going after more wealth and more riches. And often at this point, they start to switch their focus from wealth and riches to power and control. Because once you have all the wealth you could possibly need or want or spend or do anything with, what else is there? Your life is basically 
empty. You can just sit back and enjoy it all. But it doesn't seem like many people do. It seems like most people take that next step and say, well, I've got all this stuff. I've got all this money. I've got all this wealth. Uh, what, if, what if I actually tried to impact society and change society? And what if I take more control and get more power over groups of people. This is a fairly common theme. If you look at things like the Rockefeller Foundation and Carnegie Endowment when those started up, or Cecil Rhodes and the society that he set up with all of his wealth, you see that many people do decide that power and control and influence and being someone who can steer society is more important to these people than just making profits. And it's more important than increasing their own prosperity. So if you have a system where the only checks against people and groups is a market-based incentive system, that doesn't always work because people aren't always incentivized strictly by profits. A lot of people will do bad things or will hurt people or will do things that are not good for society, even if it hurts themselves as well. And so having a purely profit and loss market-based system for regulating a society is not always going to work well. Now, the argument would be that, well, yes, it's not perfect, but it probably would work a lot better than what we have today. And I would not disagree with that. But if we're talking about an ideal society, then the reality is that we need both of these types of systems in our society so that through competition and freedom of choice, both can maximize their strengths and they can limit the other's weaknesses. So the idea is if you have one smaller region that is very centralized, maybe they have a socialist-oriented government system that they all live under and the population there voluntarily wants this type of system. You could think maybe Southern California would be a likely candidate for this type of organization for their society in their region. However, maybe Maybe right next door, they might have a different region that is very focused on individual liberty and individual freedom, and they are completely anarchic. There is no ruler in that sense. It's not just chaos, but there's no actual ruler. Maybe they have an anarcho-capitalist type society. Well, when you have those two systems right next door to each other, then number one, you have freedom of movement, where if someone is in the centralized system and they don't like it, they can go to the anarcho-capitalist system. And if someone is in the anarcho-capitalist system and they don't like it, they can go to the more centralized system. And so there is a freedom of movement here, which means that there is competition between these two systems. Those systems are competing for citizens, for people to live and work within the boundaries of that system. And so through competition, they would both be incentivized to do what's best for their small region, their small societies. And with this, you end up with a centralized system on one side that is actually truly doing what's best for its citizens. Its citizens are generally all in agreement on what's going on with this system. So if they weren't, they would just leave. And that's kind of the point. Now, some people might stay behind because they have family or friends or, you know, job, whatever. There are plenty of extenuating circumstances that you can come up with and one-offs and all that kind of stuff. I'm not focused on that. I'm focused on the overall idea here. So 
overall, in general, most of the people would be there because they want to be there. They would be supportive of this centralized system. They would be probably actively involved, at least to a much larger degree than most people are actively involved in their governments and in their governmental systems. And so this system would probably work very well. It has a lot of community engagement, it has a lot of support by the citizens, and it is incentivized to do what's best for them. Then on the other side, where you have the anarcho-capitalist society, they are going to have some similar incentives there and some similar structures set up. Even though they don't have a centralized government on that side, the society as a whole still wants to keep people. So I would say that more than likely you have corporations or companies or groups of people that are making a lot of the decisions and that are the big power players in an anarcho-capitalist society. And these players will also be incentivized to keep citizens, to keep workers, to keep customers. And in order to do so, they will try to keep the people happy. They'll try to give people what they want. The people there are going to have a lot more direct say because every decision they make make has a large impact on the system they live within. So if people are not happy with some of the services that are offered in the system, then someone better step up and offer a service that the people actually want and a better version, or else the people might just leave. Or it might not be bad enough for them to leave, and they might kind of be on the fence. And then if there's one more thing, that'll be what pushes them over to leave. But in general, the society is going to be incentivized to offer these things. The market will be incentivized to offer these types of businesses. Entrepreneurs will be incentivized to step up and fill these demands and fill these gaps. And similarly to the centralized system next door, this anarcho-capitalist system will have citizens that are largely in agreement with the way society is set up, with the way things are done, with the way things are ran, with the way things are organized. And they are going to be involved. They are going to be supportive. They are going to be happy in general with what's going on. And when they're not happy with it, they will actively be trying to change it and they will be involved with that. And so again, you have a more engaged society. And when you have both of these societies together right next door with freedom of movement, then you can limit the negative aspects and the historical realities of what we see with modern centralized systems. And you can also limit the negative aspects of what you might think of within anarcho-capitalist society. If one corporation dominated the whole society, that whole region, and basically became this, you know, the stereotype of a monopoly where they raise all the prices, they limit the goods, all this kind of stuff, then a lot of people would just leave and they would go to the more centralized source. And so that anarcho-capitalist society would probably lose power, lose control. And you know, basically, whoever that monopoly was would probably go out of business or go away or whatever the case may be. And so you limit these negative aspects of the anarchist society on the other side, while you're limiting the negative aspects of the centralized government on the other side. And they both can just focus on the positive aspects that they contribute to an organized society. So this is something that actually realistically could work. And as we see historically, 
it seems that this has worked on different levels and in different ways throughout different societies around the world. Now, to expand this example, let's just say that everyone has the freedom to move where they want to move and to live under whatever kind of society they want to live under, to organize their society the way they want to. America is a good example. Maybe you have every state in America becomes their own independent entity that decides what they want to do and how they want to organize and how they want to relate to the other states. So basically, we have every state in the United States of America seceding from the federal government, and the federal government essentially is no more, or it is only in control of the states that want to have a federal government over them, and they only have the power and control that the states want them to have. And so if that's the case, if all these states can secede and have different governmental structures, you have freedom of movement, you have a lot of these benefits that I just laid out in the small example of two different regions near Southern California, if you have this nationwide, well, if you can have states seceding and separating themselves in different ways, why not counties or why not cities or why not neighborhoods? If you have this freedom and liberty and freedom of choice and freedom of movement applied to the individual, to individual families, to individual neighborhoods, to individual localized regions, then you could have a society, a nation as a whole that could reap all of these benefits that I'm going over and really limit the majority of the negative aspects that come from all these different types of societies and all these different types of governmental structures and ways of organizing groups and nations. So this is something that could happen. In reality, the powers that be would probably never allow this to happen. You did have states try to secede at one point in America, and yeah, that didn't go over all that well. And I would not glorify the Confederacy. They had many horrible ideas. They were very racist, and they also wanted to set up a fairly centralized government. But at the same time, I maybe agree with 50% of what they were going for, the idea of states' rights and freedoms, setting up an independent nation for the Indian tribes, the Native American tribes, and things like this I can definitely get behind. I wish those things would have happened. But the point is that, you know, maybe it's not very realistic to say that we are going to have this ideal society with different regions and different conglomerates of people and cities and groups and regions getting together, forming their own governmental structures, living under the societies they want. Some are completely anarcho-capitalist. Some are anarcho-communist. Some are socialist. Some are just straight up communist. Some have a dictator. Some have a monarchy. Some are organized as a republic, some as a complete 100% democracy, some are a mix of all these different types. And the point is, you can have all these different types of systems, and they can have alliances, they can actually be a nation. It won't look anything like a modern nation, but this could happen theoretically, and theoretically it would work very well. And even if you look in reality and historically at different examples of similar aspects of these types of things I'm talking about, we see that those actually do play out well in reality as well as in theory. And so that's kind of the ideal that I am presenting. But if you want to know my opinion of what is more realistic as far as an ideal, I would just say that you maximize the idea of voluntary interaction and voluntary transactions as much as possible. 
So, for example, in America, we have a social security system where you pay in, the government gets money out of every paycheck that you make, and you are paying into the social security system. Then the idea is when you reach a certain age and meet certain criteria and you retire, you draw money out of the social security system, and that's what you basically live off of, or at least it contributes to what you live off of. My ideal proposal would not be to just eliminate the social security system. It would actually be to just make it voluntary. If someone wants to have that type of system be a part of it, then go for it. If someone does not want to, then they shouldn't have to. If they want to set up their own accounts and their own savings and investments, they should be able to do so. And the same should apply to everything. If I do not really care about having a public school system, maybe I don't agree with the public school system, I shouldn't have to pay for that public school system. And if I want to spend my money towards the education of society towards a different school, then I should be allowed to do so. However, if someone wants to support their local public schools, then they should also be allowed to do so. And these things should be voluntary. Now, Obviously, this would change a lot of different things. You would have very different dynamics going on in the current system. But overall, in my opinion, things should be voluntary. And those changes overall would be beneficial for everyone. In today's world, with the technology that we have today, it is really possible to have multiple systems that are in place in one society and one geographic region because we are not tied to our geographic regions now that we have the internet and the technology that we can make use of today. Nowadays, we can all live maybe in the same city, but we can be a part of a totally different system if we want to. Just like I could live in an apartment complex with another family, and that family can agree to pay into a social security system, to pay into a complete universal healthcare system, to pay into a public education system, and all of these different things that that family really wants and they want to support. That's the type of society they want to live under, and they can choose to do so, and they would receive all of those benefits and all of those things, and they would be a part of a society, a part of a government, a part of whatever you want to call that, a structure, a system that provides all those things, and they would do so with many other people, probably millions of other people around a nation. And then me and millions others might choose not to be a part of these things. We might choose to do these things ourselves. We might choose to set up our own retirement accounts and savings. We might set up our own schools. We might do things on our own, and our money might go to that. But we can still live in the same area. We can still live as neighbors in an apartment complex, even though we are technically living under two totally different systems of government. And there would be some crossover, but in today's world, that is possible. So in general, in this podcast, I don't give my personal opinion a whole lot. I definitely have my own opinions, and it should be fairly obvious what they are, and I definitely lean towards certain directions. I offer specific information for specific reasons, but I don't often say, this is my opinion and this is what I think should happen. It might seem that way because I present an entire, maybe three-episode series on anarcho-capitalism. It might seem like I believe that anarcho-capitalism is the way things should be. And 
to some degree, I do. But also, to some degree, I don't. And so just because I argue for something or present something, it doesn't necessarily mean that's my opinion and that's what I personally believe. But I wanted to just introduce what I personally believe on this episode, since I don't generally offer that type of information. So that's my view. I think things should be voluntary. I think we should have multiple types of systems. I think we should have competing centralized systems with decentralized systems. And these things should be voluntary. And we increase liberty and freedom and voluntary choice as much as possible and try to get the benefits of both decentralized systems and centralized systems, maximize those benefits as much as possible, and use a variety and the diversity of these systems to limit the negative aspects of all of these types of structures and systems. So to conclude this episode, I want to bring up the fact that In my opinion, in reality, we do need centralized and decentralized systems. I think most people would agree with that to some degree, maybe not to the degree that I present here, but I think most people would agree that there there is a place for centralized systems and there is a place for decentralized systems. And many people might uh, just go with the overall idea of businesses and corporations are entities that we have a lot of benefits from them acting independently and on their own. However, many governments and regulatory bodies, there can be a lot of benefits with them being very centralized. That's an opinion that I think most people would agree with. And I just extend this much further. But again, you have your opinions, I have mine, and that's fine. But my point is just that there is a role for both of these. There's a place for both of these in any society. And there are some modern movements that are pushing towards these types of things. Mainly, we have the centralized systems established already. Our modern governmental system, monetary system, education system, these are all already pretty centralized and pretty controlled by a centralized government of a nation state all around the world. And so the aspect that's lacking is the decentralized competition. And that's what I'm referring to with these modern movements that are starting to fill this role and fill out this idea of competing systems. So you have things like the political philosophy of anarcho-capitalism or free cities or charter cities or seasteading. These are types of movements that are pushing towards that direction. I would love to do some episodes on these things. They're very interesting movements, but um, I'm just going to move on for now. In the monetary world, you have things like gold and other forms of hard money. You have cryptocurrencies. There are decentralized marketplaces. When you get into education, you have things like homeschooling and private schools and charter schools and independent learning. So you do have many more decentralized, liberty-focused movements going on that can compete with centralized systems and offer that balance between these two things in modern society. However, the worry would be that as we look at history and as we look at reality, we see that oftentimes you have the systems and the power players that are already established try to control and subdue and subvert these types of alternative movements that spring up in society. This happens all the time. We have the historic example of before the Reformation, there are plenty of pre-Reformation movements. There are plenty of people that tried to break away from the church or had different views on theology or felt like the Bible did not support the type of governmental system that their region had. And people tried to break away. You had these alternative movements come up and they kept getting shut down. They kept getting subverted. Some of them got incorporated into the system like 
maybe the monks would be a good example in monasteries. And then some of them just got completely shut down, like the precursors to the Anabaptist movements. But then, eventually, historically, you had the Reformation, and that did happen, and you did have groups break away. You had people with different views and different beliefs actually establish different governmental structures, different religious structures, and you had a big shift in society. So I see a similar parallel today where we have had a lot of different alternative movements that have happened throughout modern history and things that I've mentioned like homeschooling or gold. These are things that are not brand new. These have existed for a long time, but they have basically been either incorporated or phased out or manipulated or controlled or subdued for the more recent decades that we have lived under. And we see that there is a potential now with the advent of the internet and technology that we have today for these movements to gain more traction and to pick up and to actually establish some true competition to our current systems and some true opportunities for other options for people to choose. The worry is that these movements might be subdued, controlled, manipulated by the current systems and current power players in society. It might not be governments. It could be corporations. It could be foundations like has happened in more modern history. It could be many different things. It could be structures that we don't even know about or have today. But the point is that movements, alternative movements, they are alternatives, and they do offer competition. And so you have the established powers that are incentivized not to allow these alternative systems to flourish and become a thing. And so you will see a battle against that. And so the question becomes, what happens? Do these movements basically lose steam? Do they get rolled into the current systems and incorporated into them? Or do they actually start to have groups and areas that break away and go more the decentralized alternative route. And we don't know because this is the future we're talking about here. So these are the types of things that I am actually going to be getting into much further in season two of the podcast, looking at the history of certain time periods and certain movements and comparing those to our current time period and current movements that are going on so that we can better understand where we are today and what's going on and why certain movements are gaining steam, where they came from, what is likely going to happen with them. We can look at all this stuff by looking at what's happened historically. And so we can focus on history and reality and apply that to the theory of looking towards the future and theoretical possibilities. And so that theory and those theoretical ideas can become more solid. They can become statistically more accurate. I am not going to say that if you listen to season two, you'll be able to tell the future, but I will say that you are much more likely to be correct about the future and be prepared for the future that comes if you do listen to season two and you are aware of all these things that we discuss and you dig into these topics. So that's where we're going. That does wrap up today's episode. When you come back next time, we will do another episode of 
incorporating the large overarching ideas from season one into an episode that covers how we can connect the dots between these different aspects of society, government, money, and education, and look at how conspiracy and corruption has played a very important role in forming our modern systems. We'll look at different views of what power might exist behind the scenes, who might actually be in control of steering society and steering governments and steering people groups. And we'll look at the influences of these different power players and our modern systems of control and organization. So that's what we'll do for the next episode that should wrap up the conclusion for season one and take us into the beginning of season two, where I will introduce the season and then get into what we are going to be discussing for the season as a whole and introduce how that's going to look. I will say that I am very excited about season two. There is some really cool stuff that will be coming for you. There will be some extremely good content, I believe, and I will be bringing on some other people to to assist with this, and I'll talk more about that as I introduce Season 2. But there is a lot for you to look forward to, and I hope that you have enjoyed Season 1 and that you come back for Season 2. And if you have any feedback, please send that to me. Let me know what you have thought. Let me know your overall thoughts throughout the whole season and what you did like, what you didn't like, what was impactful for you, this type of thing, so that I can incorporate those things that you say into season two as I continue to produce content for you, the listener. I did see yesterday that we have more reviews for the podcast than there were last time I looked. And so thank you for those of you that have left a review. Thank you to the patrons that have joined the new patrons and the old patron that has been with us since the beginning. And thank you for your support and your input. I can now cover the hosting fees for the podcast through these donations and through this support. So thank you very much. That definitely takes a little bit of a burden off of me. I also received some new equipment for Christmas from one of the patrons. So thank you very much. I'm actually using my new microphone with a new stand support arm thing. I don't know what it's called, but it attaches and then I can pull it down and the microphone's just hanging in the air and it's really cool, really handy, very useful, and it has worked very well. So thank you for that. I have enjoyed that and I've got some new headphones I'm wearing. So that's really cool and I am enjoying that. So thank you. Thank you for those of you that are listening and sharing this podcast with other people. And thank you for all of your support of all different kinds. You can look in the show notes for links to the Patreon page, the Twitter account, the website, uh, just everything, anything that's there. You can look at those resources and get in touch with me or just review them yourself. So thank you for listening. I'm out. Peace. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Throughout human history, societies have grappled with fundamental questions of how to organize themselves, the proper relationship between the individual and the state. Whether we believe in our capacity for self-government or whether we confess that a little intellectual elite can plan our lives for us better than we can plan them ourselves. This alternative vision argues that ordinary men and women are too small-minded to govern their own affairs, that order 
progress can only come when individuals surrender their rights to an all-powerful sovereign. Now we can see a new world coming into view, a world in which there is a very real prospect of a new world order. The international order that we have worked for generations to build. And today that new world is struggling to be born, the dream of a new world order.